Dear listeners of Your Brain on Podcast, we just wanted to let you know that although this episode has some hopeful and optimistic conversations about the future of healthcare and medical ethics, it also touches on some of the darker corners of neuroscientific history. It's an incredible story, but often quite a heavy one too. Thank you for listening. In the year 1940, a 22-year-old woman named Rosemary returned home to New York. Her father's work had taken the family overseas to Great Britain, but the outbreak of the Second World War sent them fleeing back to the United States. Back on American soil, Rosemary began experiencing seizures and violent outbursts. Such behavioral issues weren't entirely new. Rosemary had faced challenges with her cognitive and physical development her entire life. These difficulties were believed to have been caused by complications during her birth when her mother Rose experienced delays with medical assistance which caused little Rosemary's brain to be deprived of oxygen for a prolonged period. As Rosemary's condition worsened in early adulthood, her family sought a number of treatments, but nothing seemed to help. When she was 23, her father, Joseph, decided Rosemary should undergo a prefrontal lobotomy. The procedure involved severing connections in Rosemary's brain, specifically cutting the connections between the frontal cortex and the rest of the brain, and was presented as a solution to her increasingly erratic behavior. This procedure was referred to as lobotomy. A lobotomy disrupts the connections between the frontal cortex and the rest of the brain, but the science behind lobotomy was deeply flawed. One of the doctors who carried out the operation described how they would ask a mildly sedated but still very much awake Rosemary questions and only stopped the procedures when her responses became incoherent. The lobotomy left Rosemary without much of her motor or cognitive capability. The vibrant young woman, once known for her charm and social grace, could no longer walk or speak clearly. The aftermath of the surgery confined Rosemary to a life of dependency and care. Her parents abandoned her and kept Rosemary separated from the rest of the family until her father's passing in 1969. Rosemary Kennedy's story was kept secret until her sister, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, shared it in 1962, a year after their brother, John F. Kennedy, became president of the United States. Even then, the lobotomy wasn't public knowledge. Eunice developed a close relationship with Rosemary and emerged as a champion of change for people with disabilities. She co-founded the National Institutes of Child Health and Human Development and founded the Special Olympics. The lobotomy only became public knowledge nearly two decades later in 1987. Rosemary's parents had kept her condition hidden to protect the budding political careers of her siblings at a time when mental health was poorly understood and heavily stigmatized. Decades later, JFK's prominence as president turned Rosemary's case into one of the highest profile lobotomies in history. And yet, Rosemary is just one of thousands who underwent such procedures. Around 40 to 50,000 individuals were lobotomized in the United States before the practice began to decline in the 1950s and was largely discontinued by the 1970s. Half a century later, Rosemary Kennedy's story is a poignant reminder of one of the darkest chapters in history of mental health treatment. It inspired advancements in healthcare ethics and inclusivity and left us with a warning against unquestioned medical authority. Now, at the precipice of major neurotechnological revolutions, it's worth asking, are we about to repeat old mistakes? 
Trepanation, a predecessor of lobotomy, involved forming a hole in someone's skull. It's one of the oldest surgical interventions we have archaeological evidence for. The holes in these ancient skulls have been found to have many bony tissue which grew after the operations were conducted, meaning that people survived them. Historians have compared the number of trepanned skulls with and without these tissues to estimate the survival rate. Throughout history, trepanation has been used in ritualistic practices, like the release of evil spirits from the mind, but also for procedures not entirely dissimilar from modern craniectomies, a method of relieving pressure on the brain by removing a portion of the skull. Lobotomies as we know them today didn't come about until 1935 when Portuguese neurologist and psychiatrist Antonio Muniz, along with his colleague Almida Lima, a neurosurgeon, developed a technique to sever connections in the brain's prefrontal cortex. They believed that mental illnesses like schizophrenia and depression were caused by fixed pathways in the brain and that disrupting these pathways would reduce stimuli reaching the frontal lobe and could thus alleviate the symptoms. We invited Dr. Warren Bowling, renowned neurosurgeon and director of the Department of Neurosurgery, specialist in epilepsy surgery, Loma Linda University, to discuss Moniz's mark on medical history. You have to look at the historical context. There was a time when there was no treatment for psychiatric conditions such as schizophrenia. There was a time when institutions were built called insane asylums because there was no treatments available. There was no medications, no treatments. So what do you do with individuals who have terrible psychiatric conditions, cannot function in society? They were institutionalized. Across the country and across the world, the institutions were full of people. And then it started becoming clear to the public that the conditions within these institutions were abysmal. There was a, a public outcry, you know, against this, but there was nothing that could be done for these individuals. And then a treatment was developed to disconnect fibers of the frontal lobe. An individual, Edgar Moniz, developed this, and he won the Nobel Prize for it. Yes, you heard it correctly. Moniz worked on developing lobotomies, scored him the Nobel Prize in medicine, one of the most coveted accolades for human achievement of all time. The Nobel Committee take a hard stance against rescinding its prizes, but Moniz is often one of the first ones that comes up in discussions about controversial wins. The historical context was, and the reason he won a Nobel Prize for this, is it was a treatment that had the potential to allow people to leave these terrible institutional conditions that they were living in. Now, what went wrong was the treatment started to be used too liberally and for conditions it never should have been used for. Additionally, medications were developed to treat schizophrenia, for example, often very effectively. So the lobotomy procedure really fell out of disfavor, and it's certainly not necessary today because we have medications that treat it better. And many famous people got lobotomies in the early days. You know, even one of the Kid Kennedy family members uh, got this treatment. and One of the daughters, yeah. Yeah, she should not have had it done, and she was institutionalized. It really devastated her. Lobotomies came to America through a partnership between neurologist Dr. Walter Freeman and neurosurgeon James Watts, who popularized a new technique, the transorbital lobotomy, also known as the ice pick lobotomy, which rather than requiring a trepanation of the skull, could be conducted by a gruesome procedure of inserting a tool called leukotome through the corners of the patient's eye sockets. Imagine this. The leukotome had a narrow shaft, which was inserted into the brain through the eye socket, and 
and then a plunger on the back of the leukotome was depressed to extend a wire loop or a metal strip into the brain. The leukotome was then rotated, cutting a core of the brain tissue. This method allowed Freeman to perform the surgery outside a traditional operating room, and before long, he was touring around the United States, carrying out lobotomies while surrounded by captive audiences and journalists, as if he were more of a showman than a surgeon. And really, he wasn't. Freeman never received any formal surgical training. Between 1936 and 1967, Freeman performed or supervised almost 3,500 lobotomies. Nearly 500 individuals died because of the treatment. That is a mortality rate of 14%. Rosemary Kennedy was one of his patients. Freeman's work continued in spite of the harm he left in his wake. Even though the 1950s saw the advent of antipsychotic drugs, a non-invasive, more humane, and far more effective options for the treatment of mental illnesses. Such drugs did eventually play a crucial role in declining popularity of lobotomies. And by the time Freeman conducted his last one in 1967, this dark chapter in medical history was coming to a close. But the moral virtues we can take away from it will last forever. We invited the esteemed Dr. Arthur Kaplan for a fascinating conversation about the past, present, and future of medical ethics. How do you get marginal experiments that become mainstream that seem to us today both non-efficacious, certainly harmful in the case of the lobotomies, and they seem to endure for a while? I mean, it's not like these things were done in one month. They were done for a long time. Dr. Kaplan is the founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU Grossman School of Medicine's Department of Population Health in New York City. He touches on how lobotomies were sometimes used to quote-unquote treat minorities who were demonized as being mentally ill or aggressive. An infamous case of homophobic and racist bias in scientific circles and mentions that the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, overwhelmed by soldiers returning from the Second World War, referred veterans to get lobotomized by the hundreds. You tend to see people giving too much deference to professional authority and opinion, not enough deference to evidence. One of the big shifts in my own life has been the emergence of the importance of evidence-based medicine, epistemological change from authority, tradition, over to show me the evidence. At the start of the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, the public health people thought they're going to do what we say because we're the authorities. And they get pushed back because people didn't like quarantine. They don't like vaccination. They don't like wearing masks. They didn't like not having kids at school. And it turned out that if you used an authority argument as opposed to an evidence argument, that was not wise. I think that was one of the blunders of public health, both under Trump and even under Biden, too. And I'm Having had polio, you couldn't find a more strong proponent of vaccination than me. But they didn't really come out with, you know, you got this idea that vaccine's not safe. It was rushed. Vaccine's like 15 years old. They're using it on things like Ebola. They got Zika versions of it. It's hardly new. But rather than sort of explain that, they talked about warp speed. 
well, you told me you're going to use a warp speed vaccine on my kid. I'm sort of like, I don't know about that. So I don't think we handled the evidence driver very well. And that has its own problems because we don't always know what the hell evidence is. But the lobotomy thing, they had an influential neurologist, neurosurgeon. He said it worked. His acolytes and followers did the same thing. Nobody had a registry. Nobody seemed to go out and say, you know, anybody getting better here? You guys think you know what you're doing? I think some of the work was done at places that were not part of the academic mainstream. You know, lobotomy flourished in the VA. VA system often was away from the academic medical centers. It kind of ran its own world. I think this stuff gets going in part because you don't have peer review and disciplinary cross-professional checks and balances. Some of the stuff going on in populations that are just vulnerable, experimenting on orphans, on minorities, doing lobotomies on the mentally ill when you run out of ideas. Today, we think a lot about trying to protect vulnerable people, but back then, I think it was doctor-driven, and there wasn't really much leverage coming back from anybody else about what you were doing. Some of it reminds me of leeching and purging going all the way back. It's like this is going on for 100 and 200 years. Nobody's getting better, but it's the doctors, the authorities. And no one's going to challenge. And I think that's part of the sociology. Our enlightening discussion with Arthur continues shortly. But first, let's return to our talk with Dr. Warren Bowling. We're kind of in the precipice of similar kind of decisions. We really have to kind of still think about the implications of surgery, not just as far as a curative, but consequences downstream. They just approve for procedure of connecting one of these devices to a human. Initially, it's going to be used for people who are paralyzed or blind and things of that nature. But the worry is the same thing that happened with lobotomy, which is a mission creep, right? The original intent being misused or abused, especially with added function with machines connected to human brain. Before we get to the machine part, when it comes to things like OCD and depression and and dystonias, what's your perspective on that as far as surgical intervention? The treatment option is generally an ablation, ablating some area of the brain that might relieve the condition. Nowadays, uh, less ablation is done and it's more stimulation, which would be deep brain stimulation or DBS. The advantage of stimulation is presumably it's reversible if you stop the stimulus. I think most DBS done today is for the treatment of Parkinson's disease and and other tremor movement disorders. These are patients who are really disabled by their tremor or other aspects of movement disorder of Parkinson's disease. It's about quality of life. In all of neurosurgery, you can distill the indications for treatment down to quality of life. Are we improving quality of life? And if it improves quality of life, then it's something we should look at. I don't know the details of Elon Musk's proposal. That needs to be looked at, obviously, quite closely. Yeah, we really have to have a system in place that holds this within certain parameters that are testable and the ethics are not at the individual level, but at a more global community level. The part that still is a little bit of a question is things like for depression, because with psychological phenomena like depression, there's not a lesion that you could address. Well, most 99.9% is not lesionally driven. Do you think that there's a special place or special approach that should be taken for psychological issues like that? As far as I know, the only FDA-approved surgical treatment for depression is a vagus nerve stimulator. And that's a device that's put on a nerve in the neck, the vagus nerve. Originally FDA-approved for epilepsy, but later became recognized that it may help depression as well. It's not stimulating the brain directly, but indirectly through the vagus nerve. A lot of the ethical dilemmas and the challenges have been addressed, and that that's wonderful. In your opinion, what is the next phase or what are you most excited 
excited about when it comes to neurosurgical interventions and brain health. One is brain stimulation. For the treatment of many disease conditions we mentioned, there's newer devices. For epilepsy, for example, we're routinely placing devices in and on the brain to record the EEG and deliver an electrical stimulus to stop seizures from evolving and becoming symptomatic. That's exciting. Also, nanotechnology can give us so much more information at a real-time level. That's incredible. Um, as a neurosurgeon who's been in the field and you're a pioneer in your field, I'd love to know how your work in performing these complex and sometimes controversial procedures has impacted your view on life, on human experience, and on death. Right. We are embarking oftentimes on surgeries and treatments that can carry considerable risk associated with them. So for a neurosurgeon, it requires guiding principles, and that's keeping the patients always first and foremost, and am I improving the patient's quality of life? A big part of neurosurgery, though, is also just saving a life. A patient may come in with a big hemorrhage on the brain, and our goal is to get the blood clot out and get the pressure off the brain and just save a life. That's part of neurosurgery also. You know, at a big academic center like we have at Loma Linda, you know, our practice is a mix of all of that. Yeah. 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 One of the reasons that we, we love Loma Linda and its approach, because one thing with Loma Linda and some of the other institutions that we work, there's an ethics committee that is in conversation with the physicians all the time, because no matter how knowledgeable we think we are, and a lot of times we think we know more than we do, and the ethics component does matter. And, and in Loma Linda, this is a central issue. I'd love to ask you about that aspect, especially as we're moving forward and rapidly moving forward into areas that are going to completely transform our perspective, not as just physicians, but as human beings. Yeah, well, certainly yeah, ethics is a big consideration in, in neurosurgery. We, and we certainly have ethics committees that we lean on quite a bit. Could be a situation where a patient may be comatose and unable to speak for themselves. So someone has to speak for that individual. And that often means that an ethics committee, you know, would be convened to try to speak for that individual. Ethics is a part of research and clinical trials. I appreciate what you said about Loma Linda and you know, our motto is to keep man whole, and we all strive to live that motto. And it's a big part of what we do and a consideration in, in all of our patients. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Do you have any closing thoughts or maybe share, you know, what your current research is? Anything for the listeners? Well, I'll tell you about neuromodulation, which is stimulation of brain and neural systems to improve function. The vagus nerve travels throughout the body, and there's considerable research that the vagus nerve has a role in inflammation, and modulating inflammation could have a huge impact. Rheumatoid arthritis, bowel disease, Crohn's disease, many others that are mediated by inflammation. So that could open the door for some really meaningful new treatment options. Earlier, we mentioned that we're on the precipice of major neurotechnological revolutions like brain machine interface or BMI. So are we prepared for what's to come or are we going to repeat our old mistakes? BMIs like Neuralink, led by Elon Musk, make grand promises about enabling us to control computers with our thoughts via chips implanted in our brains or spinal cords. But with Neuralink having already sparked federal investigations into significant animal testing violations, are we willing to hand the keys to our minds over to such projects? 
The story of lobotomies reminds us that the excitement of scientific discoveries must be tempered with caution and deep sense of responsibility. To ponder further, let's go back to our conversation with Dr. Kaplan. I want to shed light on the ethics of neurological diseases. There was a time when the number of interventions were limited. So, you know, we didn't really have the luxury of making very drastic decisions about mental health and brain health. Right. Who wants to go to a neurologist? They just diagnose you. They can't do anything. There you go. So you heard about the phrase diagnose and adios. That's basically, that used to be us. But that is changing rapidly with surgical interventions, with medication, with therapy. Deep brain stimulators. Deep brain stimulators, exactly. And now they're talking about brain-machine interface. Does that change the definition of neuroethics or not necessarily change the definition, but does it bring different shades to it? And as an ethicist, how do you see the field evolving as we move on towards more complex decision-making for these individuals? For one, deterioration in brain function, I think, reminds us that medicine is not just about life extension. It is about quality of life. So I think we've got to start to rethink due to advances in the brain sciences. How do we set goals? What are we trying to achieve? It isn't just keeping somebody alive forever as long as they could. If their personal identity, if their sense of self, if their ability to interact in a meaningful way with the world is evaporating due to these diseases. I think neurology is a big area where you start to pay attention to quality of life considerations. You know, we used in critical care over the years, we came up with this idea of the advanced directive or the living will to guide what happens if I can't say. I think we need more of that in neurology. Tell me what you want out of care. Some people may say, keep me going as long as you can. I don't care how disruptive things get for me. I still want to be here. Others are going to say, back off. I don't want you to be drugging me or putting things in my head. We know Elon Musk is talking a little bit about putting a chip in the brain of somebody. But I don't like the way this is going. Reminds me of the lobotomy problem. It's all secret. You don't know where it is. You don't know what they said to recruit the first person. Does Elon Musk know how to take it out? If the brain or the skull or the dural matter grows over, can he? He has a conflict of interest. He's running a big company, Neuralink. Normally, you'd say, geez, if you're going to do that research, have somebody do it who doesn't have a financial stake in telling us how wonderful it is. So I'm nervous about some of the way the work is being done because it looks a little bit too commercial. Right. No, absolutely. It's it's wonderful that you went into this because the rapid rate at which we're moving now is different than what was happening in the 1950s. So the combination of lack of proper oversight, lack of proper research methodology, lack of clarity of of a process that has potential to rapidly grow out of control. This is not lobotomy where you just disconnect it, although that was bad enough, but this can quickly get out of control. And then incredible financial interests pushing it in a direction without any of these things put in place. And a lot of non-medical control. True. That yeah. gets me nervous too. You got all these business guys running around in Silicon Valley saying, hey, stick this thing in your head or I, I'm all for that. But makes me nervous. I'm not against brain manipulation, I think. No. I, I, I'll Go further, I'm not even necessarily against enhancing our brain somewhat. If someone said you could learn French in three minutes, if I put this chip in your head, it's like, okay, well, you know, all right. I need- Dr. Kaplan, you're talking to somebody who took fr- three years of French in Pittsburgh and then went to France and couldn't speak a lick. <laughs> I would love, I would love that capacity. Or playing guitar for 30 years yeah. and not knowing one yeah. song. Yeah. Yeah. 
I definitely think that somebody like you being on the board or leading a group, not to slow it down, but to give insight. And we've had multiple conversations when it comes to AI and when it comes to BMI, brain machine interface, that's not there. Very few ethicists have spent any time with computers, with artificial intelligence. I'm nervous that the ethicists are not well-armed and well-prepared. We need to create humanists who at least have credible understanding of what the world of AI is all about. You got to be credible to the innovators, otherwise they don't listen. Humans, we're an inquisitive species. For as long as we've been known to have brains, we've wanted to look inside them, to alter them, to control them. As technology creates new ways to abate our curiosity, it's crucial that we remain vigilant about the inventors and companies behind them. We should also consider how do we ensure that these advancements don't widen the gap between the neuro-enhanced and the neurotypical. The integration of technology into medicine should aim to uplift humanity as a whole, not just a select few. And if we learned anything from the errors of lobotomies, it's that as we develop new treatments and innovations, we must always keep the physical, mental, and emotional well-being of patients at the core of our focus. The future of medicine and neuroscience should be guided by balance between ambition and ethics, anticipation and empathy, innovation and inclusivity. As we think about what comes next, it's vital that we contemplate what came before. This has been your brain on lobotomies, and we've been your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. Thank you for listening. 